my favorite kind of introduction right there. John chapter 4, if you would please, the Gospel of John chapter 4. How many of you have read this uh, this week more than once? I don't mean here. Now, come on. That's not what I'm talking about. All right. John chapter 4. What an amazing, amazing account that we have here. <clears throat> Our reading uh, tonight, for those of you who have not been here, we started in the beginning of uh, John chapter 4. I call it uh, Jesus at work at the well. And... Um, <clears throat> So, very, very, very interesting. I, I don't want to go back to too much or I want to re-preach things and such as that. But by the time we come to our reading tonight, <clears throat> uh, the woman that Jesus met at the well is convinced that he is a prophet. Beyond that, convinced that he is the Messiah. And um, so we're going to begin reading in verse number 25. And last night we talked about the matter of change. In fact, that was the title of the sermon, Changed. And uh, so tonight we're going to see one of the great ways we didn't talk about last night, but we'll just have to mention tonight as we get into the passage that manifests an incredible change in her life. So let's start reading in verse 25. You don't mind standing for the reading of the word? If you'll stand, I promise you, I'll give you plenty of time to sit down. <laughs> so uh, we're in verse 25. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah, Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Now, the reason she brings that up is not because what she is expecting him to say, but what he has just said. He told her all things that he knew, all things that ever she did, and exposed that. And so, verse 26, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples from Sychar with food and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot <clears throat> and went her way into the city and saith to the men, Come and see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? She must have been very convincing. Amen. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. Uh, paragraph marker there. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that ye know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me <clears throat> and to finish his work. <clears throat> say not ye, speaking of his father's work, say not ye, there are yet four months and then cometh harvest. <clears throat> Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. 
And he that reapeth receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein <clears throat> is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap whereon ye bestowed no labor. <clears throat> other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. End of paragraph. <clears throat> and many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman which testified. He told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were coming to him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. <clears throat> Father, we pray now your blessings upon our time together in the Word once again. <clears throat> and this is truly uh, a, a mountaintop story. This is such an amazing, incredible uh, event that took place here. And uh, obviously it goes down in, um, as one of the great accounts of the New Testament, one of the great parts of Jesus' public ministry, and sermon upon sermon upon sermon has been preached from this passage. Songs, so many songs, refer to this woman that was at the well. If it's not all about this incident, at least there's reference in it, and it's, um, it is so rich. We thank you for it. I pray that you would help us now as we consider uh, our verses tonight, <clears throat> and I pray that you'd give us understanding. Help me to speak with clarity and with plainness, and I pray, oh God, that there would be no doubt um, what it is we're supposed to take out of this room and what we're supposed to take back <laughs> from this place. I, I pray there would be no question about it, and I pray that your Holy Spirit might work and in this assembly would be no different than many of the people that Jesus stood before then. There were some that were totally persuaded. There were some that were once uh, committed and devoted that have taken a step or so back. There are some that never have believed. It wouldn't surprise me if all that would be here represented in this assembly, in this service tonight. So we're asking for the help and the unction of the Holy Spirit that you would accomplish your purpose. There's not a way in the world that I could craft a sermon that would address the needs of everyone in this assembly or any gathering. But you, by your Holy Spirit, you're sure able to do that. We're asking you to do that tonight. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. Thank you. God bless you. you may be seated. <clears throat> <clears throat> Last night we uh, gave the title to the sermon simply Changed, Changed, and spent pretty much the whole sermon talking about the fact that where Jesus 
uh, comes into an individual's life, it is impossible but that changes take place. It, it's, it's impossible that it be otherwise. If it's genuine, if it's real, if in fact he is <clears throat> in a person's life. And <clears throat> with this woman's, what shall we say, shameful background, uh, we, we've mentioned enough, it's well known. I'm not going to uh, keep beating the horse there, so to speak, but pathetic. She had a pathetic lifestyle, a pathetic background, very, very sad, very sad, having had five husbands. Not, not that she was left a widow, she had five husbands, and now living with a man that was not her husband. Yet when she drank of that living water, what we didn't mention last night, saving for tonight, when she drank of that living water, her interest went from herself immediately to the people of Sychar. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. Something had to have happened in here because it's not like Sychar could have been a pleasant place for her to be. As a matter of fact, think about it. Where would she find a pleasant place where people would look upon her well or where people would think well of her? Where could she go? But what people would understand, we know all about her. She had five husbands. We know what's going on now where she's not with her last husband, but she's with a guy down here and not even bothered about marriage. And, and, and it couldn't have been a pleasant place for her. Uh, I have mentioned it, haven't made a big deal about it, but she came to this well at the noon hour, which, you know, you and I wouldn't know all about their customs, but if you look it up, you can see that this is not the time that people would go at the well to get the water. Either be early in the morning, later in the evening. And a lot of that would have to do with the season it would be. And if it was very hot and you wouldn't go at the noon time of the day, uh, there would be women that would go together and they would go to the well in the morning or they would go to the well in the evening and they would gather the water. And so here she comes at noontime. Why? Why do you think? I said, who wants to be around her? Who does she want to be around? She knows. She's seen the looks. She's heard the sayings. Uh, uh, she didn't need social media for it to get around what people thought about her. She knew. She understood. So she went at the noon time. And yet when Jesus dealt with her and she uh, drank of that living water, uh, Jesus uh, tells her, I am uh, I then speak unto thee, am he. And the next verse that addresses her is verse 28. And the woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and began to say to the men of the city, again, almost everything that would be according to their custom is being violated here. Jesus meeting the woman, him talking to a Samaritan, talking to a strange woman, having discourse with her and a discussion with her, caring about her, showing the love of God. All of this, she going into town and start to address the men. Everything here is just violated all of their customs yeah but uh, conversion is more important than custom and this woman has experienced conversion 
She has drunk of that living water. And her attention goes from herself immediately to the men of Sychar. The men that would have said ugly things about her. The men would have probably uh, given catcalls and stuff like that to humiliate her because of her lifestyle. And she turns right around having drunk the living water and goes to the men of Sychar and begins to appeal to them. Come see a man that told me all that ever I did. Can I have your attention here just a second? Talk about change. Now, Generally, uh, if a woman has had experience with five men and apparently none of them good. Um, she probably is not the kind that went around and said, hi, hi, good morning, good day. No, no, you're missing the picture completely. It would have been ducking, staying under her covering, uh, not making eye contact. And well, the reason I'm trying to point out, why would the men listen to her and go out there? Well, they didn't have to look very hard to be very smart to see something's happened to this woman. Come and see a man that told me all that ever I did. And you're glad about it? No, come on. Is everybody with me here? And they're they're looking at her. And and it had to be that her countenance has changed. Well, I guarantee your countenance changed. There was a load that was upon her that's not there anymore. There was a cloud over her life that Jesus just dealt with and that living water has taken care of. There has forgiveness, uh, forgiveness has transpired and condemnation is no longer there. The burden of guilt is no longer there. Forgiven is to be forgiven and this woman has never, the reason they've never seen her like this is because she never felt like this before. But having met Jesus and drunk of the living water, she goes to town and they had to do a double take and say, "Who? Is, uh, yeah, that's her. That's the same woman. What has happened to her? Look at her countenance. Listen to her voice. There's joy there. There's gladness there. Whereas there had only been bitterness and hate and resentment. I would guarantee you this. As much as those men looked down her, at her, I guarantee you she hated them as bad as they hated her. But now she comes to town and she is saying, come and see a man that told me all that ever I did. Again, it's just kind of suggested here that she knew that she didn't, it wasn't her role to preach to them. She knew that if she started saying, you know what you need in your life? You need in your life what I need in my life. You know, you've been looking down your nose at me, but you don't have a clean record either and start preaching to them. What, what are they going to listen to that? Say, oh, thank you, ma'am. They're not going to do that. That's not how they would treat somebody like that. So what did she do? She knew there's no need in me trying to give them a sermon. There's no need in me trying to give them a speech. There's no need in me trying to convince them of anything except I can do this. I'm not trying to tell you what you need to do. I'm just telling you, why don't you come see a man that told me all that ever I did? Is not this the Christ? And it worked. It worked. The men of Sychar went out. That's a great story. However, looking right here, what we got to remember is that in something probably a little less than 40 months, Jesus is going to die. And then he'll be raised from the dead. And then he'll ascend back to the Father in heaven. So... What is Jesus doing with these disciples 
from the beginning of his public ministry where he's chosen them, and we're very early in his public ministry right here. And so what is he doing with his disciples until he goes to the cross, uh, until he is buried and raised from dead, until he does ascend back to the Father in heaven? What is he doing? Well, uh, if you read the Gospels, he's going here, he's going there. I understand that. He did many miracles. He cared. The multitudes came, and he had compassion upon them. All we got to do, and I'm going to reference here in a little bit, fits this passage wonderfully, is in Matthew chapter 9 when Jesus saw the multitudes, and he was moved with compassion upon them. And so Jesus was a man of compassion. The Bible says simply that he went about doing good. Jesus went about doing good. And Jesus went about... Uh, let's borrow from what's right here in this room. He was doing the works of the Father. Amen. My Bible says, yours does too, that he only did the works his Father gave him to do. He, he never wondered outside of what his Father had for him to do. I, I mean, from the very time that he was but a boy, he had to remind Mary, wish she not that I must be about my Father's business? That's the reason he came, to do the Father's bidding. That's the reason he was here, to do the Father's will. I came not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So what is he doing? He's doing the work. And, and, and what, is he, what is the work of the Father? Well, it's not only that he show the love of God to those that are in such need as the multitudes were and as the people from everywhere as much as they had need. It was to do that for sure, but also for the time of that departure that his disciples would understand so they could carry on the work. Because they were going to carry on with the same mission. He was going to pay the price for sin and they were going to take the message of the gospel and spread it. Uh, our, our Bible teaches us that what the disciples, these apostles, what they taught, uh, read the book of Ephesians chapter 2 sometime, what the disciples taught laid the foundation for uh, the doctrinal foundation that we're still building on to this very day. Yeah. I, I said, we're still building on that to this very day. Yeah. I sat down on an airplane one time and had a three-hour discussion with uh, a man, it's a long story how he came to sit right next to where I was, but I already had my Bible out, and he was a Catholic theologian. He was a priest. I could see him coming up in the aisle. The flight attendant already said, this is the only vacant seat on the plane. Aren't you lucky? And I said, well, yeah. And I saw this guy coming down the aisle. <laughs> so I knew what seat he was going to. Big man. Collar backwards, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm just dressed like a Catholic priest. And he comes and he sits down right there. So we get in this discussion that goes on for three hours from wherever we were uh, all the way to Dallas and right up to the gate. We were talking the absolute whole time. And the big discussion we had uh, was and why I told him that we couldn't have all of this togetherness that he said that we should have is because we don't start from the same place. What do you mean we don't start from the same place? I said our sole authority is the Word of God. Amen. And your authority, now I said John, you, his name is John. He's a scholar, wrote, wrote curriculum for their uh, theological institutions all over Latin America. He's traveled all over the world. See, I couldn't sit down by just a simple parish priest. Oh, no, no. Had to sit down by a theologian, you know. And so I said, John, you correct me if I'm wrong, but the order of authority for you is the Pope, tradition, 
and the Bible. Is that right? He said, that's exactly right. Our, our first line of authority would be the authority of the Pope. It doesn't take long to see problems right there. Uh, the Pope and then the tradition of the elders, uh, uh, of the fathers, not the elders, but the fathers. And I would say, but the Bible says, he said, I know, but the fathers have said that it means. And so they go by that interpretation. Well, I just want to tell you right now, we're not into that. That's not where we're coming from. That's not what God intended. You read the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and you'll see those apostles, they laid the doctrinal foundation upon which we are still building. And if somebody is out here and they fly under the big banner of Christianity, are you listening to this now? They fly under this big banner of Christianity and somebody says, well, they're sincere. Well, I mean, they're good people. And they say this and they say that. Now, hold on just a second. We don't measure their doctrine by what we discern about their sincerity. Amen. Hindus are sincere. Many of them are. Buddhists, many of them are sincere. Many Mormons are sincere. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. And the doctrine is laid, the foundation being the apostles and their teaching, and Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so if our teaching is not consistent with the teaching of the apostles, then our teaching, then that teaching is wrong. I've stood at the door, oh, how many times? I used to stand at the door too much, as a matter of fact. Couldn't resist a good debate and stuff like that in my younger years, you know. But a lot of that's futility. But anyway, I remember standing here and I said, but here's what the Word of God says in its context, which is, by the way, important. Uh, so, he, uh, but here's what it says. And you know what I heard back in response? Well, I don't, I, I don't really care what it says. I just know what I've experienced. So everybody's experience is the criteria for what is true and what's right. You can't do that. Uh, that's totally contrary to the teaching of the Bible. I, I don't care what the Apostle Paul said. I know what I've experienced. <laughs> It's sort of like the days that Jimmy Carter was president of the United States and, and he was, of course, a Southern Baptist uh, Sunday school teacher, he said. And so he was all on the bandwagon back in those days for the women's liberation thing. Boy, that was a long time ago, wasn't it? But anyway, uh, he was all on the bandwagon and the big deal came up about women in the ministry and women preaching and such as that. And uh, so he was on Phil Donahue of all things. Now think about this, Phil Donahue. He put, he put Billy Graham on the spot one time, as you wouldn't believe. But ask me after church. I don't have time to get into that. But, but he said to Jimmy Carter, he said, but the apostle Paul says, he said, then I disagree with Paul. Phil Donahue, not really a theologian himself, but he could read. And so, and he read to him what the Word of God says. And Jimmy Carter says, well, if that's what Paul said, like he wasn't sure, what are you doing teaching a Sunday school class anybody if you're not even sure what the Word of God says? But nonetheless, uh, he said, well, if that's what Paul says, then I disagree with Paul. Like, that's okay? No, it's not okay. I don't care what your name is. I don't care if you're president of the United States. Well, he was, as a matter of fact. It, it, it really doesn't matter who you are. The doctrinal foundation has already been laid. 
It's laid by the teachings that Jesus gave to the apostles and then that the Holy Ghost called to their mind of the teachings of and about Jesus Christ. And that's the doctrinal foundation upon which we are still supposed to be building to this very day. Yeah. And so here is, uh, trying to figure out what in the world that's had to do with the John chapter 4 here. Oh, yeah. Uh, so he comes, what he's going to do is he's, gonna, he's teaching his disciples. He is training his disciples. Now, in our passage, he is training his disciples about the harvest. See, when we come to this place, this is really interesting to me. I, I didn't get it just reading through, but studying the passage. Here, here's what you, you got three dynamics going on at the same time here. Look at me a second. The woman came to the well. She had Jesus' full attention. She had Jesus' full attention. He didn't say, well, I'll talk to you till something else. No, he had, she had all of him right there. His full attention. Um, then you have the men of Sychar that came. And he spends two days with the people of Sychar. Well, we don't know what he did. Well, many more believed. And they said they believed because of his words. So what do you think he did for two days? Teach and preach. That's what he was doing. And many more believed. Then he had the disciples. And every, now don't forget this, he was wearied from his journal, and yet he, a journey, and yet he gave himself completely to the needs of that woman. He was wearied from his journey in his humanity as the God man. He knew what it was to be the evidence of his humanity right here, that he was weary from the journey, and she had his full attention. He was wearied from the journey, and he gave two days to the men of Sychar. He was wearied from the journey, and he takes time to teach the disciples. you got all three dynamics going on at the same time, and each of them have the full attention of Jesus Christ. <laughs> I love Jesus. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Wow. Hmm. If you're really interested in serving the Lord, you need to remind of this at times. Because it seems like you're getting pulled in this direction, this direction, and this direction. And you can almost pull your hair out where he didn't. There's no need for us to. Amen. Just give of ourselves like he did here. And that's what he's going to teach his disciples to do. That's what he's going to teach them. So let's look in... Uh, Verse number 31 through 34. I'm going to show you right here in our text three things that he teaches the disciples. Uh, first of all, if you look in verse number 31, in the meanwhile, his disciples uh, prayed unto him, uh, saying, okay, so they got back uh, from the town where they had gone to, to purchase food. Okay, so they come back. See the woman at the well. They're trying to figure this thing out. Nobody said anything. Very awkward. The master, the pure, can I have your attention? The pure and holy, harmless, undefiled son of God. They caught him talking to this woman, the kind of woman she was. 
so awkward, nobody said anything. Yeah. And uh, then the next thing you know, the woman's taken off with her water pot still sitting here. She's running happily into town. She is free for the first time in her life. I said, she is free. Come on, don't make me go through that whole burden and guilt of sin again. She is free for the first time in her life. She senses a freedom and a joy that she has never known before. There's something in that living water that made a lot of change in that woman. He made a change in her, and the disciples are watching her run off and go back to Sychar. They're probably scratching their head. And in the meanwhile, as she's on her way, they come to Jesus and say, Master, it's time for you to eat. You're wearied from the journey. It's been a long time since you've eaten. It's getting later in the day. We've had no nourishment, and I, uh, the disciples wanted him to eat. He said, I'm not hungry. Well, that's not word for word, but it's there. He actually said to them, look at verse 32. He said to them, uh, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Well, here goes another head scratcher for the disciples. <laughs> Therefore said the disciples one to another, did anybody, did anybody bring him? Did you see? I mean, the woman didn't, uh, she didn't have any food on her. She didn't leave any food here. Where would he get anything to eat? Somebody come by with a vending cart or something like that while we were gone? Is that what happened? We don't know what happened. And so Jesus knew their consternation. And he said in verse 34, look at this. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, if I can have your attention, this, this kind of thing's going to get boring. I don't want to bore anybody, but I've got to give you the definition of meat. Now, I know what I think when I say meat, a piece of steak, a hamburger, bacon, on, on and on, good stuff. We know what meat is. It doesn't mean that kind of meat. Listen to this carefully. The word means, now listen to this, this word do we have for meat. The word meat means that which nourishes and refreshes and supports what it is meat to. That's a good, that's good. It's so good, I don't care if you are bored, I'm going to read it again. <laughs> Listen to this carefully. Meat, that which nourishes, refreshes, and supports what it is meat to. And Jesus said, I, to his disciples, I have meat to eat. I have what nourishes me, refreshes me, what supports me because of my weakness being without food, but I have what you haven't learned yet. That there is a meat that satisfies that you don't partake of and consume it uh, as food. That's what he said. <clears throat> and that's what he's teaching. Do you remember when he was tempted of the devil? He was hungered then too. The Bible says, and he was hungered, I reckon, after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. 
And the adversary says to him, if thou be the son of God, how dare him, if thou be the son of God. Like it's up to him to decide how we determine whether he's the son of God. But anyway, he says, if thou be the son of God, turn these stones into bread. And Jesus answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What? A man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So Jesus said, there is something that nourishes. There is something that refreshes. There is something that will strengthen you that has nothing to do with the physical food that you consume. And here's what it is. To do the will of God. That's what he said. That nourished him. Well, think about it. This woman, you could, you, you could, as you read the story, you can feel the struggle going on in her soul. You can feel the devil at work. I'm not trying to be weird, but he had her life. And uh, didn't say anything about her being demon-possessed, but Jesus had, had cast demons out of people. And whether she was demon-possessed or not, it doesn't say I would rather think she wasn't, but it doesn't mean the devil didn't have control of her life. And think about that. And Jesus offered her to drink. She's so dry. She's so thirsty. She's so frustrated. Her religion was dead. Her lifestyle was frustrating. One relationship to another, to another, to another, to another, to another. That's no exaggeration. One failure after another, after another, after another. Her religion let her down. Probably her family, whatever family she might have had, had probably abandoned her, forgotten about her a long time ago. And the relationships she's had, she apparently knew nothing of what it was to be loved or somebody to really care for her. And this woman has now drunk of the living water and she is happily and full of joy, a changed woman on her way to town. And Jesus watched that away you think he's interested in food and besides that what has he just done what his father had him to do I, I, I think you missed that part what what else do we have here what we have is Jesus having done exactly why his father said you must needs go through Samaria Amen. and that's why right there she's on her way to Sychar that's why you had to come through Samaria. Now, you think food sounds appealing to him at this time? <laughs> it didn't. Why? Well, he was already refreshed. He was already strengthened. It didn't drain him and take all the energy out of him to do the Father's will. Put the energy in him. That's, everything is implied right there. It says it right there. And she, He said, I have meat to eat you know not of. And, and when he says, do you know not of? Look, he's not bashing the disciples. He, he, he didn't say to them, how could you stand here right now thinking about food? He didn't rebuke them. He didn't, he didn't put them in their place. He just said, you don't know yet what I have. But they learned it. Read the book of Acts. I just came through the book of Acts in my Bible. Oh, they got it all right. Yes, they did. Because they knew what it was to fast and never complain about it. 
I said they knew what it was to deny themselves. I mean, I, I, I still can't get over that one in Acts chapter 5 when they come away from the beating rejoicing that they, they, they were beaten. I just don't even know if we understand what beating by the Romans has, means, but they were beaten, and by the time they were beaten, they went away rejoicing, counted the blessing that they were able to suffer for Jesus because he suffered for them. Yeah. That's meat to eat. They didn't know in John chapter 4, but they knew in Acts chapter 5. Is everybody with me here? And so he said, you have meat to eat that you know not of. The reason I bring that up, I think it'd just be a wonderful thing if God's people could get a hold of that. Uh, for guests that are here, we have uh, with uh, the ministry back at Southwest Baptist Church, the Heartland Baptist Bible College and the students uh, uh, become members and come to that church while they are in Bible college unless they uh, work into a situation where they're serving in a sister church in the area or in driving distance. And so uh, I, I love being around the students. My wife and I, I think the most we ever had was 480-some students on the campus uh, in classes at the same time. And my wife and I worked at it, knew their names. We love being around the students. I, I love being around them. I was the pastor of the church and, and uh, president of the college, and I'd be at chapel, and man, I loved going in the cafeteria. <laughs> Not necessarily for the food, uh, but going in the cafeteria and hanging out, you know, over lunch. And yeah, it's wonderful. Just such a blessing. Great delight. Wonderful. A real joy. Refreshing. Uplifting. Had students come up to me and say, Brother Sam, would you pray for my pastor? Well, yeah, well, sure, what's going on? Well, I just, I just want to ask you to pray for him. And uh, I would say, well, is there anything specific I can pray? But I don't want to pray, but is there anything specific? Well, he's just tired. He's tired. And I shocked him every time. I said, well, good. He ought to be tired. <laughs> If a preacher's not working hard enough to get tired, he ain't worth his salt. <laughs> Brother Sam, I said, he'll be all right. If he's doing the work of the Lord, he's doing the work of the gospel, he's going to survive. He'll be fine. And something will signal him, sit down, take a day off, and catch your breath, take your wife out of town or something for a day or two, and then get back to work. We ought to be tired. Well, I pastored people that worked hard. They came to church tired. Part of that is what motivated me in my little saying, sleep if you can. Because some of them came to work. They started very early in the morning. Here we are on a Wednesday night. Some of them just got off work, didn't even have time to go home and take a shower or eat supper with the family, and they came right to church. And maybe some of them, it was the first time they ever sat down to relax for the better part of a day, and they're tired and they're weary, and they're there, and they're going to go back to work tomorrow. And then they'll be out on Saturday and work on a bus route and then get up early Sunday and go run the bus route. And we had 22 buses running. So it just took a lot of people to be involved like that. We had people that were tired. We pray for your preacher. He can pray for himself. (laughs) (laughs) 
He'll be all right. Because I can tell you, I mean, I've, I've lived a fairly busy life. And I can tell you right now, my wife will tell you right here, we can go. I, I got up at 4.30 on Sunday morning, and that's a long day. Got to where I'd sit in my chair, and I'd take about a 20-minute nap in my office. I'd look at the first page of my notes, and it'd put me to sleep just like that. <laughs> and so <laughs> then I'd sleep about 15, 20 minutes, and I'd wake up, and we'd do the service, stay late at the church at night. She and I were almost always the last ones there with hundreds and hundreds of people. And, you know, and we would be the last ones there, and then often we'd take somebody out to eat or have somebody at her house or go home. And I can remember sitting there with not hardly, even when I was in my 40s and 50s, I just totally exhausted and felt so good I couldn't hardly stand it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because yep. yeah. doing the work of the Lord, well, it, it, it's not, it would be silly to say it doesn't take some kind of physical demand and physical toll. That would be ridiculous to say. But what happens in the spirit, what happens in the soul is so invigorating. Yeah. So invigorating where you knew God met with his assembly today. God met with his people today. God's word was effectual in the, in, in the lives of the people. The music lifted our hearts to heaven and made us give thanks and praise to God. And the people had good fellowship together. And nobody even came by and said, <laughs> nobody. Nobody even did anything like that. Nobody said, you preach on that way too much. Nobody said anything. Just, it was just a whoo, happy day, you know. And you can go home just totally physically exhausted. And oftentimes you can ask her, I'd be catching an airplane by 5 o'clock the next morning. And, and not looking forward to that. Uh, you had a lot of energy. You kidding me? It about killed me. I hated it. I was bitter at sometimes about getting up to go get on an airplane. But I'm just saying, just go like that and go. And yet to see the work of God being accomplished and people's lives being affected. And there are people maybe sitting in churches, see, because preachers aren't going to do it all. And church staff isn't going to do it all. Just like the mainest, that's not good, but the mainest part of my physical body it's not going to do all the work. I need little members of my body that are less significant than the most visible. At least it seems that way. I need them to be doing what they're supposed to do too. I, I would ask you, what part of your physical body is it okay with you if it doesn't work anymore? I think most of us agree. I just assume everything is working. Including my little toe. <laughs> Is everybody with me here? Yes. Including what Paul called those uncomely parts that are in here. Some of them aren't very pretty to look at from what I can tell by some pictures I've seen. But they play a really important role. Well, a New Testament church, we're not talking about something universal and invisible. In the, new, in the scripture, the very definition of the term called out assembly defies anything that is universal and invisible. Oh, I disagree with you because Dr. So-and-so on TV and on the radio and I read a book and they talk about the universal church and the invisible church and then the local church. Huh. <laughs> they do, huh? Yeah. Would they ever explain how that thing worked? Universal and invisible? Because the only way it has any fulfillment in our New Testament time is by a local assembly. A visible assembly called a body. A church is not an organization, it's an organism. It is a living body. Whose body is it? 
okay, let's just go to Calvary Baptist Church in Marshall, Missouri. Whose body is this? It's not his. I've been here since way back longer than anybody else in this church. Well, it's no closer to being your church than it is being the church owned by the newest member here. And, and Paul taught, I just read it this morning. I read through First and Second Corinthians. And in First Corinthians 12, that the Holy Ghost is the one that adds to the body. He's the one that puts the thing together. And every member that he puts in the body is to function to the welfare of the whole body. See. And there are some people that say, well, my job is so demanding. Maybe you ought to get a different job if you can't serve the Lord. I got my education, I worked hard, and I got promoted, and I mean, this job, this isn't just a little flunky job, dude. This is a big job. This is really important. There's only 89,000 other people in the country to do this. This is a big job. Ain't no job so big or important that it keeps you from serving your Lord. I challenge young people all the time about, you know, they're put in a place, choose your career, choose your career. Why would people choose a career that they know is going to keep them out of church half the time, three-fourths of the time, and just totally disenable them to actually serve Jesus? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Amen. Why? I could list some professions right here. I'm not trying to be ugly to anybody. And I love people. I love the flock. The people of Southwest Baptist Church, I pastored Bible Baptist Church in Stillwater. But I can just tell you right now, there were people in certain professions that I never saw anybody of that profession that was close to being spirit-filled or could effectively serve in a New Testament church because the career controlled their life, not Jesus. Well, I think you are way narrow. Well, I'm not any narrower than this. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. And somebody said, who, who said that? Who said that? Same person that said, for God so loved the world that he gave his own. Oh, well, that's my favorite verse. That, that's, well, the same person said this. Seek you first the kingdom of God. And, and what? What you're gonna do? You're gonna you're gonna listen. You're gonna commit the destiny of your soul to the words of Jesus in that area, but you won't do it with your overall life, or you won't do it about money and livelihood such as that. Yeah, but I've always wanted to. Yeah, but you're not the Lord of your life. Jesus is. If you're saved, if you're His, it's His shot to call, friend. And far from it being, well, I just think it, it would be boring. It'd be a drag. It would where people, you don't make much money. <laughs> yeah. I remember Sandra and I left Bible college. We were both working. We got married before our last year. We were both working. And I think what we left town with and, and the money that we had in our possession 
I think, I, I, I don't believe this is an exaggeration. She usually challenges me if it is. But I think we were nigh on to 20 years before we ever had that much money again. That's how much money we had getting out of Bible college. You know how much Bible college people make? We had more money then than we would have for the next 15 to 20 years. Didn't even know that we were supposed to be unhappy about it. <laughs> Just having the time of our life. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what it is to have meat that the world doesn't know about? A joy, a satisfaction, a refreshing and energy. And while people are coming off of their work week, I, 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 I listen to them and travel and so forth. They're coming off of their work week and they can't wait. They're just going to reload. One guy I heard say, he was talking to his buddies about what they were going to do and where they were going to drink and what they were going to drink. And he said, by Monday, I won't even remember what the weekend was about. And they all laughed and said, yeah, that's great and stuff. And I thought, oh boy. They don't know the meat Amen. that Jesus is talking about. But neither do lazy, backslidden, selfish believers that won't give of themselves. Won't give of themselves. There's no way to follow Jesus without self-denial. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Jesus said. That's not my interpretation of it. I didn't go look to see what the Father said. I wonder what that means. Yeah. Heaven's sake, I can see what it means. Amen. That if we're going to follow Jesus Christ, the selfless one, if we're going to be his follower, we cannot be self-centered. Right. And if we are not willing to deny ourselves of our own ambitions and learn what it is to take or partake of this meat that the world doesn't know anything about, that the carnal believer, professing believer, doesn't know anything about. If we're not willing to do that, then what we're going to do is do, listen, we're going to be fake disciples. Yeah. <coughs> so that's the first thing he taught them. Meat to eat, you know, not hope. Look at the second thing. Look down in verse 35. We've got to do this fast. You held me up way too long on that one. Look in verse 35. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you. Now he's going to teach them about the harvest. Why would he go from there to the harvest? Well, uh, did you look in verse 34? Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. What is his work? I said, what is the work of God? The work of God, Jesus will say in John chapter 6 and John chapter 7, the work of God is that people believe on him so that Christ is preached and Christ is presented so that people believe on him. The work of God is to get lost people saved. It's to get people that are dead in their trespasses and sin to have sin forgiven. It's to get people that are, whether their lifestyle is anywhere like the woman at the well, they are just as lost and just as empty and just as hopeless. And it's to get them to drink of the living water. That's the work of God. So here he refers to the harvest. Why would he say the harvest though, Brother Sam? I don't understand that. <laughs> Neither did the disciples. But Jesus knew what was about to happen. A harvest was coming. The men of Sychar would be coming out of the cities. Everybody listen to this? Jesus knew this. He knew what was going on. <clears throat> he knew what was about to happen. The disciples were clueless. Where did that woman go? What in the world is she doing? Running in there all happy and everything. 
And next thing you know, Jesus must call their attention. And here comes this wave of humanity that's coming out of Sychar. And they're coming out to where Jesus is. And I, I just wonder if there might not have been a smile on his face when the disciples looked and saw them coming. Because he knew they were coming. Amen. He knew a harvest was coming. He knew they needed to understand about the harvest. And so Jesus said, don't you say that there are four months and then come at the harvest? Which must have to do with the fact that by the time they would plant the seed till they would actually have a, a, a harvest would be approximately four months. Don't you say that after four months, then come at the harvest? Jesus said, but I say to you now, the harvest is white already. We are ready for harvest now. Amen. Huh? That's what the disciples were doing. Oh, bless your heart. Some of you can't see that between the lines there, but that's exactly what they were doing. They don't understand what he's talking about. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already unto harvest. And they're, they're looking at these people and they're looking at Jesus. And, and they just, and they must have been thinking, maybe even said, doesn't mean every single word is recorded here. They must have been thinking, we just got here to have a harvest you sow and then you wait. And then you reap. We just got here, and he's talking about the harvest. We didn't have time to sow. <laughs> so they're just trying to figure this out. So let's see what Jesus says. Watch this now. Down in verse number 30. Uh, Behold, I say unto you, 35, look on the fields for everyone. And he that reapeth, watch this, he that reapeth receiveth wages. Men, you're about to reap. Master, please. Sychar in Samaria is needy, but it's not ready. There's no harvest here. Jesus said, it's needy and it's ready. And he that, watch, reapeth, receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying, true, one soweth and another reapeth. Look at this. I sent or am sending you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye are entered into their labors. And the disciples right there are scratching their head again. Who labored here? Well, Samaritans, oh, don't miss this. I'm going to do it quick. Samaritans have been in existence about 700 years. When the northern kingdom came down under the judgment of God, the northern kingdom, then the Assyrians took them partly into captivity and then scattered them and then possessed their land. The Jews then began to intermarry with Syrians and Assyrians. And therefore, you have this mixed breed of people that become what we know as the Samaritans. And to the Jew, their lineage and the purity of their lineage was very important to them. And here you have people, number one, they hated the Assyrians. They wreaked havoc upon their nation. And so they despised them and they hated them. And now you have people that are intermarried with them. And so you have this whole people group that are called Samaritans. And somebody says, well, whoever labored among them? Did you ever read the prophets? 
Did you read the prophets that went to the northern kingdom and warned them about the judgment of God? Did you ever go and read about the prophets that were all uh, prophets of Judah and the whole house of Israel and not only warned them that they could still repent and still turn to God and then also gave them assurance that a... <laughs> a king would come and sit upon the throne of David and that he would reign and that he would be the Messiah. I'm just saying the prophets had already sowed here among them. That's why the woman came to Jesus and said, we know that Messiah cometh. Well, how'd you know that? Because prophets of God had preached that generations before and it passed down and passed down. So they had this hodgepodge of idolatry and hodgepodge of true prophets of God. And they warned or told them of the coming Messiah and what Jesus is saying. Oh, there's been more work here than you know. And now you're going to reap. And so here came the men of Sychar. And many of them believed. Stay here, stay here, stay here. A common cry where Jesus was at work. Can you stay here? Two days he stayed there. I'm sure the disciples did a whole lot of learning about soul winning, pointing people to salvation, introducing them to the Messiah, uh, teaching them what they had just recently learned and what they were learning at the time. So here they are getting some hands-on experience and they didn't even labor there and yet they're reaping. And so those that labor, there's going to be a time. Come on, there's going to be a time. Beyond this life, when those that labored and those that sowed and those that reaped all rejoiced together for every person that drank of that living water. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. He called it the harvest. Now, I'm, I'm going to skip my notes. I'm going to get right to a point here. He called it the harvest. Let's destroy a myth or two, shall we? Well... This is the 21st century. This is a difficult time. You can see right here in our country. It's weird. Wicked. Immorality. Perversion. Crooked government. It, yes, I have to agree with all the above. But you would not want to trade with the Jews of Jesus' day for anything in the world. You and I don't have any idea. How many of you believe we're overtaxed in this country? Well, if you were taxed like the Romans taxed the Jews, you'd think we got it pretty good here. I think we're overtaxed too. But if we were taxed here like the Romans taxed the Jews, we would be glad to take what we got here. I, I promise you that. And the disdain and the hate and the oppression that these Jewish people served. Let me tell you, Jesus said there's a harvest coming. Yes, but Jesus, I don't think you understand the social climate here. <laughs> Please. <laughs> like, like it has to be a favorable social climate for people to get saved. When has that ever been the case? I said, when's that ever been the case? Yeah. When in history has that ever been a requirement? Uh, be ready because when the social climate is right, we must strike. As a matter of fact, some of the most effective and fruitful work that has ever been done for the gospel has been in the most unfavorable of climates. Yeah. Yeah. 
So let's, let's just get rid of that. Don't, don't look at the 21st century and because uh, the election didn't go, maybe like some people wanted it to go and me included, and because we got this going on and that going on and the China thing and Russia and uh, the confusion, the chaos of the world, and think, oh, this is, I tell you, no, this is the time to be working. Amen. Amen. This is the time. It is. Do you know where the problem is? Not many are in harvest mode. I said not many are in harvest mode. Uh, I, I'm going to close with this, but, you know, my dad, it's not like he was a big baron or anything like that. He wasn't. But he was a wheat farmer, never farmed his own land. He inherited some land in western Oklahoma, but none of the family ever farmed it. Others did, and then they sold the land and kept the oil rights and gas and oil. So he sharecropped. So on a given summer, we'd have six to 700 acres of wheat, and then we had some pastures well, and my dad would maintain a herd of 75 to 100 cows, and then during wheat pasture time, you'd swell to a couple of hundred or 300 cows, stuff like that. So, you know, we did all that kind of stuff. And I'll tell you what, I, for me personally, I lived for harvest. <coughs> I lived for harvest. I loved everything about farm life except cleaning the chicken house. <laughs> I didn't even mind, I didn't mind, uh, you know, milking cows, doing the separator. I didn't even mind cleaning the separator for those that can explain it to your kids later. And so, I, I mean, I, I loved it. I loved getting up and feeding the livestock, you know, my show pigs and sheep and stuff like that and, and breaking ice and all. Yeah, I, I loved every bit of it. It was wonderful, but there's nothing like harvest. Nothing like it. What I noticed around our house is um, during harvest time, if you complain about being tired, it could be the death penalty right there because <laughs> at harvest time, you don't think about how many hours you're putting in. I don't know how many times I, I went to sleep in my old ups, uh, in this old farmhouse in this upstairs bedroom, and right down below me was the propane tank where my dad gas, uh, filled up the tractors. And I can remember we're trying to finish our wheat and do some disking behind the combines so we can get the combines, my uncle and my dad, and go to Kansas and do some custom combining, pick up some extra money, then we'll come back and plow our land. So, but I can remember many times that I'd roll over in bed and I'd hear the tractor. It'd be like 3.30 or 4 in the morning. And my dad couldn't sleep. He's got all of this stuff on his mind. And he's just getting an early start at it. Ready, getting ready to go. And I can remember, you know, we still had the same chores to do. He worked. I can remember harvest time. Even my two sisters worked. This was amazing. <laughs> I'm still almost in unbelief about this one. Everybody worked. Everybody worked. The garden still had to be taken care of. The cows still had to be milked. Everything had to be fed. Everything had to be done. And then to the harvest time. And I can just remember uh, going on the harvest up in Kansas, and we had two weeks, two weeks straight of cutting wheat. Two weeks. Uh, every day for two weeks, it was a, over 100 before noon. And there was no humidity. You could cut wheat all night. The owner of the land wouldn't let us but we would start, we'd leave the little place we were staying in, Syracuse, Kansas. We'd live there at 4 o'clock in the morning, and we wouldn't come back till after between 11 and midnight because we'd harvest till 11 o'clock, and then he made us shut it down. 
because he's afraid he's going to lose some grains by humidity, but there wasn't any, but still, it's his business. And so we come in. And after that two weeks, I can remember we're just all kind of walking around a zombie. But my dad told me what this meant to be able to get the piece of equipment he's looking for with the money he just made in those two weeks. And on and on it goes. And maybe some new clothes, stuff like that. And in the harvest, doing the Father's work. I loved it. Not many churches in a harvest mode. I said there aren't many churches in a harvest mode. The places I go, you know who's seeing people saved? The people that are going after people to be saved. Do you know what that takes? Time. Work. You don't bring in any harvest without investing time and serious work. Is everybody with me here? You don't get the harvest in without investing significant chunks of time and serious work. And you don't when you're trying to harvest the souls of men either. It takes work and it takes time. And there aren't many churches in the harvest mode. You don't find the willingness. You don't find the willingness to give up anything. Yeah, it's really tough times. Really, really tough times, Brother Sam. It's tough. It's got to be a tough time for church work. It depends. If you're in harvest mode or not in harvest mode. If you're in harvest mode, there are people to reach. If you're not in harvest mode, they'll just stay out in the field. That's it. I'm not trying to be ugly. I'm not trying to be hateful. There's just no other way to cut it. We need some people in harvest mode. We need some people that are willing to go after people. They're there. Well, this is a, this is a rural town. I was raised in a town of 5,000 people. That's about the size of Trenton, I think, isn't it? Somewhere right in there. Sandra and I were both raised in a town of 5,000 people. <clears throat> and I can remember I was such a country boy that Morrison over there played basketball and baseball year-round, didn't even have football back in those days. And I told my dad, I wish I didn't go to such a big school. I wish I, was, I thought I was in a big school. <laughs> Had 100 kids in our grade. Yeah. Yeah. Takes a lot of work. You have to be in harvest mode. Um, it's actually the Father's harvest, too. I said, this is actually, is, is everybody listening? It's actually our father's business. And we're going to give an account to the father about how we approached his harvest. And there are a lot of people that talk about, I want to hear, well done, and have no basis to think they'll hear that. 
because they haven't so much interest in the Father's harvest, yeah. His work. We finished uh, all of the, you know, the harvest and the groundwork, disc and then plowed, everything done. Had a rainy day and my dad took me over to Enid, Oklahoma and said, I said, Dad, I'm going to go fishing. It's not raining that bad. He said, no, you're going with Mom and me. I said, I believe I will. So that's what he said I'd do, so I did. So went over there and couldn't figure out why I had to go. Pulls out an address. My mom pulls out an address out of the purse and gives it to my dad. We turn here and turn there and pull up in this driveway and uh, in this house. And my dad says, Sam, come with me. And my mom stayed in the car and I went up the door. Little lady answers the door, little grandmotherly type lady answers the door. And my dad says, I have an ad here out of the Enid paper that says you've got this 1950 Chevrolet for sale. Is it still for sale? Yes, it is. My dad said, could I take a look at it? She said, well, certainly. Went and got a key. We opened the garage door. In those days, you had to actually pull up the garage door. It was terrible times. Terrible time. But anyway, pulled up the garage door, and there sat this, this is 1961, and it's a 1950 Chevy with 26,000 miles on it. I mean, looked like a grandma's car. But I could see what could be done to make it not look like a grandma's car. But anyway, uh, my dad said, can we drive it? Well, certainly. And so, you want to go with us? No, no, you go. And so we drove it around. I said, Dad, what are we doing? He said, I'm looking at this car. So he goes up and says to the lady, what do you want for the car? And she said, $350. My dad said, we'll take it. Didn't fuss with her or nothing, $350. <coughs> my dad told my mom, we'll meet you downtown. Enid, that's a big town we went to. And said, we'll meet you down there. Went down at 8. And I said, so dad, what's going on? He said, that's your car. Oh, Really? Really, I was thinking maybe a V8 or something like that. <laughs> but he knew what he was doing. So anyway, we get home, and I go upstairs, and I, I'm, I'm very excited about this. And so I go upstairs, and I get my checkbook because I had a couple of cows, and I had sheep and pigs and all kinds of stuff. And so I had some money, so I wrote a check and took it down to my dad. He's sitting down at his desk, and I said, here you go, Dad. And he said, what's this? I said, I'm paying you for the car. $350. And my dad stood up. Now, often when you're talking to him, he stands up. It's not always a good thing. <laughs> this it was. And so my dad stood up, and he took my check and just tore it up and threw it in the trash. And I said, what are you doing? And he put his arm on me. He wasn't a big huggy guy or anything. He put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, Sam, you've worked like a man this summer. I'm not giving you that car. You've earned it. You've earned that car. And so I won't take any of your money. It's yours. And uh, I hugged him and thanked him, you know, went upstairs, and it just kept ringing. You worked like a man. You worked like a man. That's what my dad said. I was just turning 16 in about two weeks. And you worked like a man. You worked like a man. That just went through my head. And there for a time, my dad's approval meant far more to me than that car. Now, I'm just going to tell you something. This is the Father's business. Preachers don't build churches. And it's the Father's business. And we will give an account to the Father. And not everybody's going to hear, well done, 
that thinks they're going to hear well done just because they didn't do a bunch of stuff that's bad. What are you doing about the harvest? What are you doing about the father's field? What are you doing about the father's flock? What are you doing about the harvest of souls that needs to be reached? And we have his favor when we have engaged in his work. Not our definition of it, but his work. See, that's what Jesus was teaching his disciples. And all disciples have to learn that lesson. Father, I can't stand here like I'm an expert on the dynamics of Marshall, Missouri and the county that we're in here. The demographics of it and all of that. I, I'm, no, I'm not an expert at that. I don't know. But I know long before there was all the analysis and all the technology that your son Jesus walked and he loved people, took time to talk to them, gave them reason to live, forgave their sins. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Great is thy faith. And he went about doing your work. No wonder you said more than once, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And there's still a work to do. There are people out there that need one of the young men of this church to show they care for them. To show they care whether they go to hell or heaven. There are some young men and families in this congregation right now that have purposed and determined to love their wives. I've talked to some. To love their children and to do things right. That makes, I, it bless my heart so, it blesses my heart so to hear young men talking like that. But may we never forget we have a responsibility to those that are out here within our reach that don't know you, they're ignorant. I don't say that in a derogatory, demeaning way. They just don't know you and they don't know your word and they don't know that there is such a thing of meat that nurtures and, and strengthens and refreshes that doesn't have anything to do with coming from a grocery store. They don't know. And there are senior citizens in this room that still have the mental faculties and the strength and the health to reach out to people in this community, in this area, that don't know Jesus. Well, a lot of them already have their religion. Yep, so did this Samaritan woman. But it failed her. And religion by itself fails men and women. They don't need religion. They need Jesus. I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves whether we're in the harvest mode. This isn't an accusation. 
just a challenge? Are we in the harvest mode? How many members of a family should be involved in the harvest? At our house, I may joke about it, but in our house, everybody was. No one is not involved. I have no doubt you mean for it to be the same way at your house. Everybody's going to contribute something to getting this harvest in. It's the Father's. It's his work that must be done. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work. Thank you for the teaching of Jesus. Gave this woman water to drink. Dealt with the men of Sychar. Many of them believed. And at the same time teaching his disciples. This is what your life is going to be about. This is what your life is going to be. No, God, we don't have to be apostles nor full-time preachers to be involved in the harvest. No, no, no. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work and accomplish your purpose out of this invitation time and out of this service tonight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Let's stand together, shall we?